Thanks for tuning in to the Survival to Thrival podcast, based on the book series with the same name. I'm Helen Croydon, and I'm the interviewer of the biggest stars of the show, the two co-authors, Tehi Norm and Bob Tinker. Tehi and Bob are a duo of investor and entrepreneur. They have a long history of working together and have written two books together, aimed at founders and entrepreneurs striving to build enterprise startups. This podcast is based on the themes, advice and real world stories from their book series, Survival to Thrival. If you enjoyed this, please like it, subscribe or share it with your network. Hello, everyone. This episode, we're focusing on finding go-to-market fit in different markets, Europe, USA and beyond. We're joined by Tehi and Bob, as usual, and also a special guest to talk about this topic. He is Christoph Baumgartner. Christoph started off as an individual salesperson at Mobileye in Europe and then became a CRO of a $200 million a year business. And recently, he's become Storm Ventures Entrepreneur in Residence, which we'll talk about that later, no doubt. So I am going to hand straight over to Tehi and Bob as they have loads of questions. Well, Christoph, we're really excited to have you join us and uh, share your insights for the, the broader audience. And, and maybe so that the audience can get, just get to know you better. If you could tell us a little bit about, you know, how you enter sales and uh, your uh, career journey at Mobile Iron. Thanks, Tehi. Yeah, so initially, I, um, I was not in sales. So my professional career actually started very different. So I'm uh, very technical by education. So with a master in computer science and electrical engineering, I was in various technical roles. I worked in, as an engineer, as an engineering manager in professional services. I ran product management and sales engineering. Um, but actually very early in my career, I already noticed that I do not like technology just for technology's sake, but actually technology as a way to generate business. So that is uh, what is actually driving me. Um, technology is great. I like it. It has to be a technology uh, solution that I'm working with. But in the end, it's all about uh, generating business from there. And then based on that, when you joined Mobile Iron, what exactly was your role when you first started? Actually, at that time, there have been just a handful of employees in Europe, and I was asked to run the business in the Dach regions so or the German-speaking countries. So um, my manager back then, uh, Case van Winder, he had a chance to hire actually single sales reps into these uh, yeah, bigger regions in Europe. So he couldn't really afford to hire a rep and an SE. So in the end, he tried to hire people with a product background or SEs who wanted to make their first step into sales. And that was pretty much exactly my profile, right? So I came with a long time domain expertise, but a lot on the product, on the technical side. And, and I remember at one point uh, you had mentioned like 30% of the, the DAX companies were your customers. I'm wondering how you achieved that. Actually, in the end, it was about 70% of the oh, DAX 70%. companies. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Bob was always counting, and he reminded me that we were not at 100% yet. <laughs> well done, Christoph. Well done. Yeah, so, um, I mean, in the beginning, I had to focus a lot, right? So we were at a, in a fascinating situation. So we had a lot of demand for our solutions. In the end, I decided, okay, I mean, what do Germans like? They like cars and beer. 
Okay, so actually I focused quite a bit on cars, on the automotive industry, and that's where we got our first wins. And that actually helped to create awareness and get us um, into conversations with other large organizations in the region as well. So you became uh, an incredibly successful sales rep in Germany, as Bob mentioned. You know, you're now 70% market share, which is fantastic in, in that market for large enterprise. And from that, you became head of EMEA. If you could describe that journey going from being a great individual sales rep to becoming head of uh, a major region. Yeah, it didn't come overnight, right? So I did not run the EMEA uh, right away, but actually um, I added more regions into my my patch. So first I added Eastern Europe. I was asked to add Eastern Europe. In the end, I ran um, Central EMEA and then half of EMEA. And at one point I ran EMEA. So um, that's what I actually did for most of my time at Mobile Iron before I took over the Global Zero role. So in the end, I, I guess it came because uh, what, what we did in these regions and it was, was successful, right? So I was asked to kind of replicate that into these other regions. And, and what is it that you had to replicate? The, the pattern that you found successful that you decided to replicate in other regions? In our case, what we, our go-to-market model was uh, built around a heavy channel-centric model. And I think that kind of commitment to the channel uh, was something that we had um, um, expanded into the other regions as well, but also the way how we had built our channel. So the channel was built on multiple pillars that gave us access to different budget holders, to different people in the customer organizations we were talking to, and kind of that model of how we have started the channel in uh, in Germany, we, we kind of expanded that into the other regions then as well. And that model was just the right thing for, for mobile iron uh, business. Obviously, that changed over time, right? I mean, there's nothing static, but um, from moving from um, a single product company to multi-product company, we had to adjust our channel program, uh, our channel focus as well. Also moving from a heavily on-premise perpetual license-based model into a cloud subscription-based model, uh, we had to adjust. We had to adjust as an organization, but also we had to adjust our channel um, um, efforts and the way how we were talking to channel, how we were motivating channel partners. On the flip side, are there things that you had to unlearn in going from being head of like Germany or one region to being head of all of EMEA? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it, it was more about really setting the stage for for the teams in these regions or for the teams across Europe, rather than being the, the actor on stage myself, right? So sometimes it was a little... Um, challenging to stay quiet and not actually uh, jump on stage and try to run a deal or opportunity or get into a customer conversation. It was really to make sure that the teams can be successful with all they need, all the resources they need in terms of personnel, all the materials, the product, um, everything that is required to make them successful. You mentioned channels is sort of a big part of the go-to-market in the early days and the later days of Mobile Iron. Maybe let's zoom out just a second and talk about going to market in Europe. You, know, you were one of the first salespeople from Mobile Iron on the ground in Europe. And you know, I remember sitting at headquarters being like, okay, we're going, we're going to go sell in Europe. 
great, let's go. Right. And, but it's different. You know, maybe if you could share a little bit about how, what's different about starting to sell and going to market as a startup in Europe than it is to, you know, go to market in Chicago. We're one of the first salespeople on the ground in Mobile Iron in Europe. You know, Mobile Iron had to learn like, hey, Europe's different. But I think for the audience, it'd be super helpful to for them to understand, like, how is going to market in Europe different than going to market in the U.S., Chicago, New York? First, there is not one Europe, right? I mean, it looks like it's all the same, but actually it's very, very diverse within Europe. There are many similarities, obviously, but on the other hand, um, there are also uh, differences between regions within Europe. So, for example, market maturity might be completely uh, different between Western Europe and Eastern Europe. Or um, cloud adoption, right? Even within Europe, cloud adoption is not the same, right? We Germans have been pretty slow in adopting the the cloud uh, solutions, for example, right? And so it might be that uh, um, that your the cloud because the cloud adoption is much faster, much more ahead in other places. You might want to start there rather than in Germany if you have a solution that actually fits that that fits that model. It might also be that regulations are different. So depending on the, the what type of product you have, right? It might be that you need to deal with local regulations, um, or you ne- might need a. a certification from the government or whatever. Okay, so it's different. That makes sense. How should a U.S. startup decide it's time to even start in Europe? Like, what are some of the signals that you would be looking for if you were the CEO of a U.S.-based company trying to figure out whether it's time to go to Europe or not? First thing I would say, never too late. Hmm. So that is what I what I have noticed recently. There were some organizations I talked to that actually started late in Europe. So late in a sense that their competitors had been there and had already grabbed some attention and market share. So if you are a follower, it might it's a little more difficult than it is if you are like the, the first one in that particular market. On the other hand, obviously, the organization needs to be ready to support a sales organization that is in a completely different time zone. There might only be a few, very few hours of overlap in the day. Clearly, if, if you are not ready as an organization to support that sales organization in Europe, then it's not, you are not ready yet. But also, I would say you have to find the right leader to your, for Europe. Um, I have seen cases where organizations were struggling because they didn't start with the perfect fit. And then they failed, right? So the first attempt failed. And then they're like, ah, it's not going to work. We give up. It's yeah. not going to work with Europe. Or they have to restart. And when they have to restart, they lose time. And then in that during that time, competition is yeah. uh, already there and is succeeding and grabbing market share. So it's I think it's a fine balance that you need to find, right? So I would say never too late. But at the same time, you need to be ready. So Christoph, let's drill into that. Uh- are, is there a big difference between a successful European sales leader and a successful American sales leader? Let's assume we're talking about a U.S. company that is entering into Europe. Because we are so far away and we don't have a lot of overlap in the day, that European sales leader typically needs to be more of a general manager or with a little bit like a CEO brain, someone who works more cross-functional. 
right? So, so typically the US the European sales leader cannot focus just on his sales organization, but he has to work with the other resources he has available to himself in his region, right? Maybe with customer success, with uh, in, in GNA, right? Um, or, or local marketing if the, if marketing and sales are separate organizations. So clearly it's more much a more cross-functional way they need to work in than um, just just a quote unquote a sales leader um, in North America. And what about uh, individual sales reps, whether European or uh, American? Do they have like different motivation, different in, you know incentive structures work for them, or just you know attitudes? I noticed that um, U.S. sales reps they ask for more ready-made collateral sales tax, marketing support, and all that. Whereas in Europe, because typically, you know, um, you're far away from headquarter. Maybe not all functions are available to you right away. So there are certain things that you have to do more on your own. I give you an example. I mean, typically when you start, you don't have your, uh, your first uh, meeting deck localized into most of the European languages, right? So typically what a sales rep is doing, okay, he's building out these decks in his own language and maybe he's changing and adapting them to, to like more the way how you talk about these kind of solutions in this local country. I think that people are just forced to be a little bit more independent and self-supporting just because they are far away from from all the functions and yeah, need to solve that issue on their own. One other thing that I noticed is that um, if as a sales leader you uh, you work with spiffs or, or bonuses for to drive certain behavior. What I noticed is that these are typically taken on much more aggressively in the US um, than in Europe. What about customers? Are European and American customers different in terms of like uh, accepting risk, um, you know, being an early adopter or buying process or, you know, there again, you know, if you're a large auto company in Germany or a large U.S. company, you know, is it pretty much the same? I mean, there, there are so many startups and for European customers, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to figure out, okay, how mature are they as an organization? Where are they in their product uh, journey? And, um, and and that obviously, it, it creates some uncertainty for some customers. But that is exactly where the channel partners can help quite a bit, right? So a lot of European customers, they really trust their partners they are working with. And so partners who spend a lot of time with vendors that they are onboarding, they're getting educated on these vendors and their solutions. Channel partners can help quite a bit in, in creating that kind of uh, trust in, in the vendor or in the vendor and partner combi combo. As CEO of Mobile Iron at the time, we started going to market in Europe and we had channels in the U S and that was fine. And they helped, but it turns out like a channel in Europe is not the same thing as the channel in the U S and I had to sort of unlearn that perception and something Christoph just said there, I thought was super important, which is that the channels in Europe are actually uh, are trusted by the customer. They're heavily involved in the sale. So the thing that I eventually figured out on this is that in the U S channels are kind of transactional. They're a little more order takers. But in Europe, the channels actually act a lot more like an extension of your sales organization. They tend to be um, higher level, 
relationships. They tend to be more sophisticated in their ability to offer solutions. It took me a little while to figure that out, but it turns out that, and I think that comes from the fact that a lot of the European countries had to be much more independent as sales organizations. So the channels learned to be much more self-sufficient. And as a result, the customers actually relied on those channels in very different ways. So if you're sort of a US company thinking about, hey, I got to think about channels in Europe, don't automatically presume that channels in the US mean the same thing as channels in Europe. Oh, that's exactly right. So I think, Tehi, you asked me once if there were any um, unlearning moments. Uh, so when I actually switched my role from being the EMEA leader uh, to become the CRO, I exactly had that assumption, right? So my assumptions about the enablement status of the channel in the US, and it was in for mobile iron, right? And also their motivation and what is driving them. I just had an assumption that is very similar to what it is in Europe. Because that's obviously where I had my experience. But then I learned actually that the status quo was very, very different than I actually expected. It's a sort of an interesting dilemma because as you start going to market in Europe, usually in the US, like in, you can't get the channels to pay attention to you until you're a big company. Ironically, in Europe, when you're a small company, you can actually get the channels to pay attention to you and they can be super helpful. But that needs a lot of work, right? That doesn't come for free, right? So it's not that you go to a channel partner and tell them, hello, I'm the new vendor. Now you sell my stuff. So, so let's talk about that, Christoph. Like, it's a bit of a chicken the egg thing. Like, okay, yeah. you're saying you're a new company. You go to market in Europe, say, hey, we're going to go sell in the UK and we're going to go sell in Germany. Yay. Great. Okay. We hire two people. You stick one in Germany. You stick one in the UK. Go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> like, how do you... How do you sort of get, how do you get that initial kind of flywheel going? I think first you need to actually sell the idea of working with this new vendor to the channel. And that is not just telling them, hey, we have a product that solves a customer need and you are the one who can sell it. That, that's typically not motivating enough, right? But if you can actually present a plan to partners that actually gives them uh, uh, that gives them like more, more than that. So they understand they can actually build a business around that or on top of what you offer them. And that's actually what we did, right? We went to these channel partners on day one and told them, look here, we have a product that solves the customer need. And actually there's a lot of demand for what we do. Look here, we have leads that we can uh, work on together with you. There are even some that we can give to you after, when, after you have been trained and um, and enabled um, but at the same time, we told them, you know what? That's only half the story. But when you sell $1 of mobile iron license back then, right? Um, there's an opportunity for you to actually generate $3 or even more services in, in services revenues. Because back then we have been an on-premise solution, right? Okay, so there might be like installation services that they can charge for. So Christoph, how did that work in the cloud world? Because I think customers today, you know, are going to be buying cloud services typically. There's not that many on-prem solutions. So how would you translate that into selling cloud services? It's just different services, right? So even cloud solutions, so enterprise cloud solutions, uh, depending on the solution, they are not like completely self-service, 
right? So, I mean, consulting services, right? Or implementation services, even for the, for these cloud services, they are still valid. They are not going away just because it's a cloud solution. And I mean, obviously it's a different model that you need to propose to them, but there is, there is a model in place that actually, it, it, not for all organizations, but in our case, clearly there had been, there has a different model been there that actually was motivating uh, for partners to actually continue working with us as a vendor and selling different products and uh, in, in the cloud. So going back to this distinction of the European channel versus the US channel, I heard two different things about the European channel. One is that they're an extension of the company's like sales arm, the other the vendor sales arm. The other is is that they're a trusted partner to the customer. Mm-hmm. It's sort of hard to play that middle role. So do you believe that that European channel really is more an extension of the customer or an extension of the vendor? I wouldn't say it's one or the other. It's really both. Therefore, also, there needs to be a lot of trust between the vendor and the partners, right? So the trust between the partner and the customer is typically there when they are in the business for a long time and they're selling many different solutions there and work together. But the trust between the vendor, when it's a new vendor, obviously, that trust is not there yet. But the trust between the vendor and the channel partners is actually important. And that's why we actually invested in that quite a bit. Very early in the beginning, we uh, we invested in in trainers to actually um, enable and educate the channel partners so that they actually find the trust in our products and solutions. Hey, look, you started selling in Europe. I think the third person or fourth person we hired in Europe was a trainer. Yes. And I remember like Case, the guy running Europe was like, we need a trainer. And I was like, that's a terrible idea. We yeah. should hire another sales rep. And he just stood his ground and was like, you got to trust me on this. And, and I remember that there was quota assigned to that rep that you wanted to hire. What, what did he do? He assigned the, he distributed the quota to the other four or five reps that were there. So he increased our quota in order to be able to hire the trainer. It was very smart. So why was the trainer so important in terms of the go-to-market playbook and replicating the go-to-market playbook with the channels. Like talk a little bit about that because that was super counterintuitive to me. Typically people are very good in talking about their solutions. If they're well-educated and they're confident that they look well in front of their customers. So if, if a channel partner is actually not so sure and is not fully enabled, so he might not stand up at the customer meeting with a strong statement of, you have to buy this solution and not the other one, right? So it, it's, it, it creates that trust in the solution, in the vendor, if they under, fully understand what they are up to. And we create the training on different levels, pre-sales training, post-sales, post-training, sales training. All roles within these channel partners actually had a chance to be, uh, to be in front of their customers and be the hero. And that is kind of, that was very important for us to make sure that they had the confidence. They trusted in us that we give them what they need to, uh, to have that confidence in front of their customers. And that kind of motivated them. So let's double click on this playbook point, which is that, you know, companies can figure out their early go to market playbook in the U.S. and now it's time to translate that to Europe. Does the U.S. playbook transfer over to Europe? Do you need a new playbook? Like, talk a little bit about how 
the playbook needs to change or doesn't need to change as a company goes from winning deals in the US to trying to get a market in Europe? I think there is no clear answer because the go-to-market playbook is very different depending on the organization. So I think also the um, the go-to-market playbook or the difference in go-to-market playbooks between the US and Europe uh, is will be very different. So in, in in our case, the the playbook was uh, was similar, right? But not exactly the same. So I give you an example. So I mean, when we uh, our playbook was was strongly tied around POCs, right? Or evals, as we called them back then. And um, in the US, we were kind of running all these evals ourselves as an organization. In Europe, because we had trained these partners, but also because we kind of forced them into these situations, um, partners did a good job in actually running these POCs on behalf of us. Not all of them but quite a few. So that helped us to actually scale our the amount of POCs that are the evals that we could run at the same time a lot. So, I mean, with just a few um, sales engineers in the early days, we could not have run as many POCs, but with partners in play, we could. So it's similar, right? So it was still tied around the POC, but it was not the same party actually executing uh, the POC. So that would be one of the um, way, uh, examples to actually see, okay, can be very different, very, very uh, similar, but at the same time, it can be uh, different in the execution. Christoph, that was great insights about the differences between going to market in Europe and going to market in the US. Uh, in conclusion, if you put yourself in the chair of a US-based startup CEO who is being asked or thinking about going to market in Europe, what would be a couple sort of final points of advice for them? I think the first question that CEO should ask himself, is the organization ready to support um, starting in Europe? Then also that CEO should be very much aware that he needs to be open to changing his go-to-market playbook in Europe if necessary. Right. So not insisting in just running exactly the same go to market playbook in Europe. And I think then the third is really about the, the initial team or even the sales leader for Europe. So you have one chance, right? So uh, it's really about choosing the right person there and not just the easiest uh, solution to start into Europe. That's uh, terrific feedback. Thank you for spending time with us today. Thanks for listening to the Survival to Thrival podcast with me, Helen Croydon, and co-authors Tehi Nam and Bob Tinker. This podcast is aimed at enterprise startup leaders. If there's someone you know who would find this podcast useful, please share it with them, subscribe, or leave a review. That's how others find us. Survival to Thrival.